Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to pick it up uh, in verse 14 where we left off at. Of course, Paul has been writing to Timothy and really dealing with benevolence. and That is, taking care of the widows and those who were widows indeed. And we talked a little bit about that. You know, there was this group of older women who had, you know, been their husbands had passed away, of course. And, but they had raised children. They had washed the saints' feet. They had, were just good, godly women. But yet they had no visible means of support. And so the church took them in. And, and of course, they were actually on the dole. And so they were being paid. And uh, which I think is kind of cool when you think about it. You've got a bunch of older women who, they, night and day, they prayed for the church. I can't even imagine. Like I said, I think I mentioned it before. I couldn't imagine the power that would be in a body, you know, when you have a group of older godly women who are gathered around the world just praying for the ministry and praying for the pastor and all that stuff. So that's an amazing thing. He's talking about these younger widows who were you know, below the age of 60, but, but still old enough to have children. And they had visible means of support. And Paul said that these women should not be taken into this little group of older women lest they decide, you know, they fall in love with some guy and decide that they want to get married again and then feel condemned, you know, in their self, you know, feeling guilty because now they would wind up leaving, you know, and, and going to that. So Paul says, don't even take them in. Just let them marry and let them bear children. Let them do what they're supposed to do, what they feel called to do. So it really wasn't that big of a deal. And in course, verse 14, he says, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give more occasion to the adversary, give no occasion, excuse me, to the adversary to speak reproachfully. I think it's interesting here that he said that the younger woman should guide the house. Do you see that, ladies? It's interesting. Because I've been asked a million times when, it talks, when you're talking about husbands in the home. And men are to be the spiritual leaders of their house. They just are. I'm not saying that men shouldn't cut the grass. They shouldn't do anything. Sure they do. I mean, I, I'm so particular about that kind of stuff. I'm like, I'm, well, I'm OCD. Or actuality, it's CDO because that's the order it ought to be in. Right, I'm just like that when it comes to cutting the grass. Say, so I do all that stuff, and that's fine. But the women, really, God has said that they should rule the house, run the house, guide the children, guide the daily affairs, if you will. Women are better suited for it. Men, we just don't think in that direction, really. Most of us don't. Men, we, we work, we come home. You know, we, we do it. We want to plop on the couch. We want to, you know, chill out. We want to relax. And, and, and ladies are, let's face it, men think in boxes. They really do. You know, we, we compartmentalize everything. That's just a man. Every time I hear a woman talking about, you know, she'd be complaining about her husband. She'd go, well, you don't know Jerry. He's like, and I said, no, that's a man thing. That ain't a Jerry thing. That's a man thing. We're all that way. I told a guy that tonight. He was talking about, you know, the, uh, a guy that we both knew. And he was has he been to the doctor? I, he asked me. And I said, he's a man. Is he dead? No, he hasn't been to a doctor. Most guys just don't, you know, they'll wait till the last minute. Why? Because that's men. They just, they're just like that. I don't know why. It's just the way we are. But we compartmentalize. Women, on the other hand, they don't do that. Women can run 20 different things at one time and for the most part do it well. It's not a problem for them. They, they can, it, I always, like I said, when, if you looked at their brain, it's like a, Anybody play golf? You ever cut a golf ball open? Cut a golf ball open, and it's one actually one big long rubber band. 
starts in the middle and they roll it up and it just becomes a great big ball. But in reality, if you could find the interview, you pull it out, it's just one big long straight. That's the way women think because everything's connected. And it just, to them, men were not like that. Men do, and I heard an old preacher say this one time, he's absolutely right. He said, men actually have a nothing box. Okay? So ladies, when your husband, when you ask him, what are you thinking about? And he says nothing. He means it. There is a nothing, I have a nothing box. And the the thing is, is as a man, I will retreat to that nothing box as often as I can. And so, you know, and women don't have a nothing box. They just don't. They think about everything. And so they're just, but that's why they they do good at guiding the house. They think of that. So my wife is like that. She's good. She thinks of all the little stuff. I'm, you know, I'm concerned with the Word of God. And pretty much everything after that is... You know, I got to be honest. That's, that's, that's me. I get up in the morning. First thing I do, I crack my Bible. I start studying. I like music, but even music, it's like when I'm in that mode, when I'm, when I'm in that box, okay. But for the most part, if, if I heard my wife telling somebody the other day because I had forgotten something, some occasion or whatever it was, and she told her, she said, if there's something important that Doug needs to do, please tell me. I will put it on the schedule. I will see to it that he, he is reminded of it because she knows me. That's just me. And I don't mean to be that way. I'm just a man. And I can change if I have to, I guess. <laughs> but I doubt it because I'm a man, you know. So, but women guide the house. Men should be the spiritual head of their households. In the body of Christ, and I'm not telling anybody anything that they don't know, but just for the sake of reiterating it. Most men abdicated that realm to their wives years ago. Hundreds of years ago. They just, that's why, that's why the church, most churches are made up of nothing, a majority of women, if you notice. Look around on a Sunday morning. The majority of them are women. Why is that? Because men abdicated. They've abdicated their role as the spiritual head of the household. And a lot of times ladies have had no choice but to take that up and to fill in the gap, if so to speak. So, ladies, if you have a godly husband and, and he operates in that realm, thank the Lord for it. And I think most women want a godly husband. I think most women want a man who will, you know, take charge of the spiritual things of the household So and then allow her to do what she does best because that's really what we're doing. You just allow people to do what it is that they do best. And so here Paul says that the younger women should marry, bear children, guide the house. And I'm thankful for that in my own life. I have a wife that guides the house and does it well. Verse 15. For some are already turned aside after Satan. Once again, those who become idle, he's talking about. Gossips, busybodies, speaking things that they ought not. Paul said that some of them had already turned aside to Satan. It was the case then, and, and unfortunately it is still the case today that that's what, say, you know, there's an old saying that idle hands are the devil's, you know, play, play thing. And so when, 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 when that starts happening, there's nothing worse than gossip. Um, and it's really, and of course, Dave was actually talking about, you know, where Peter opens his mouth. Jesus is talking about going to the cross and Peter says, you know, far be it from thee, Lord. And, and what's Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou savorest not the things of God. So you can open your mouth and you can become a tool of the enemy. 
And it's unfortunate, and gossip often is that way. And so often when you have women, as Paul's de dealing with here, who have nothing but time on their hands, and they're not occupied with the things of God, sometimes they're occupied with the things of others. And that really is nothing more than a playground for the enemy. Look at verse 16. If any man or woman believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. So once again, everything that Paul has been talking about as far as benevolence for the widows and stuff, it really boils down here to verse 16. He's going, look, he says if, 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 they, if they're believers and they have children, they have grandchildren, let them help them out so that the church doesn't have to do it, so the church can actually help people, the widows who really needed it, who were destitute, as he told us before. That's what it's really boiling down to. You know, people have this mindset, and some churches have this mindset, that, that the church is the, not only the welfare system within the body of Christ, but they're the welfare system for the world. I've never believed that. I don't see that in Scripture. I see benevolence in the Scriptures. I see that, you know, we should help people out when they need to be helped. I think that that's common biblical sense. But to think that somehow anybody who walks in the door and asks for 50 bucks, that we should write them a check, I think that's foolishness. What are they going to do with it? We're going to get to a passage here in a moment where Paul says, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be a partaker of other men's sins. You know, I've heard people say, well, I just give them the money and, it's, and it's, it's up to them. You know, I'm giving it to the Lord. Well, that sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Did you ever think, have you ever heard the term enabling? So often we enable people and we enable them to continue in their iniquity. Why? Because we just simply feed money to them. And it's just not the way it should be done. True benevolence is determining whether there's an actual need and then meeting the need. There's no problem with that. That's a work. That's, that's something that we should do as, as Christians. But to just fork it out for anybody, whether that's an... I remember, I'll give you this, not my notes, but it, but it relates. Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, big church. Assistant pastor there under Chuck Smith was Romaine. That's all we called him. Romaine. Romaine was a big guy. Really, you either loved him or you hated him. Romaine had been a Marine Corps, I think he was a gunny sergeant, had retired, I believe, and that part of him never left. That was Romaine. Romaine was, a, was pragmatic. I mean, he, he just, you know, he got up, I heard a lady tell me this story, and he got up one right before Thanksgiving, he says, look, if some of you, and of course, this is a church of thousands of people, and he says, if some of you are having a hard time, we want to help you out, you know, uh, so just let us know. Well, this one woman decided she was going to, you know, um, see about that. So she did. And Romaine said, great, uh, you know, come on down to the office. Here's the date. You know, we want to, you know, see if we can help you out. Well, when he got her in there, he wanted to, you know, he asked a few questions. He wanted to know, well, why are you in the situation you're in? Let me see if I can biblically explain to you how not to be in that situation. We're going to help you out, but we want to show you how not to do that again. And she was offended by that. See, the, the problem is, is, listen, you never be offended when somebody offers you godly advice if they're giving it to you from the scriptures. You know, we all understand that old adage, you know, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. You teach him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Even within the body of Christ, stewardship is the key. So often people are hurting financially, not because they don't make enough money. It's because they spend as much as they make. And then they spend more than that. 
I've been there. I've done it. I haven't done it for years and years and years, but I learned the hard way like most people do. You know, it's stewardship. If we all lived, not just within our means, but actually below it. I hear all these, I'm always getting these things from retirement companies. You know, they want to sell you this and sell you that, you know, to extend your 401 or whatever it is, you know. And I'm going, you know, if you just quit blowing your money on dumb stuff, you, you, you'd probably be okay. But so often in our, in our society, we just, we want that instantaneous gratification. You know, when I, when I go to spend money, because I look at every dime that I have, not as mine, but as God's. Because every good and perfect gift comes down from the fire. It's, it's not my money. It's the Lord's money. He has placed it in my stewardship. So when, if I'm going to give it away, if I'm going to spend it even, is it equitable? I mean, is there, is there value in what I'm purchasing with it? Is it going to be a one-time purchase? Is it something, you know, and am I robbing God to get it? Simple questions. But so often people find themselves in these hard places, and we really do, if we can, help them to learn how to be a steward of what God has already given them. And most people, if they would just be a steward, they would find out that, you know what? You, you probably make enough as it is. I've, I couldn't tell you how many times I've had somebody come to me and want me to pray with them about taking a better job. And my question, and I said, sure, I'll pray with you. But let me ask you a question. Why are you taking a different job? It almost hands down, it's always been, well, you know, I'll be making, uh, you know, $2 more on the hour. Okay. So you've been making $2 more. Let me ask you another question. Will that $2 an hour more, will that alleviate any financial problem that you're having now? Oh, it'll make it better. In what way? You'll have more to put in the bank or you'll have more to spend. What, I mean, what, what, in what way is it going to make it better? You know, the, the problem is we don't look at that. And I told him, I said, listen, most of the time, enough will never be enough with a lot of people. It'll never be enough because most people will spend as their income goes up. They only wind up spending more is all they wind up doing. So the issue of stewardship is seeing it not as what you have, but as what God has given you. And every dime God has given to us, we're stewards of it. And so it really is just looking at it that way. And so when it comes to the issue of benevolence, taking care of what, yeah, but we want to help them at the same time. We don't want to just enable people. We want to help them genuinely and help them grow in the Lord, even in the area of finances, so that they don't suffer these problems. So if any man, you know, verse 16, once again, if any man that believe, or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. If you're taking notes, you ought to underline that. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox which treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. The word elder here should be understood in the sense of leadership. Paul was talking about church leaders, is what he's been talking about. So those elders, he's saying, that rule well, who labor in the word and teach we're worthy of double honor when he's talking about honor here he's talking financially because you'll notice in the very beginning of the chapter you know, in chapter 3 up there he's talking about the widows who were worthy of honor he's talking about you know supplying them with financially he says here that the elders that rule well are worthy of double honor especially those who labor in the word and doctrine double honor is interesting 
There are those in Christendom who believe that church should not support its staff. Some go as far to say that the paid ministry is basically an abomination. Their main complaint is that the church should be using its money to support the needy. And there is those who adhere to that. They have kind of taken that on as a mindset. The problem is it's not biblical. It's just not biblical. This is what Paul was trying to, to, to establish here. Let me give you a paraphrase. This is an illustration. <laughs> I don't remember who said it. I, I, I just have the quote written down. But I don't remember who the guy was that said it. But I like it because I think it explains the heart of what Paul's trying to say here. And here's the quote. He says, what I've been saying, of course, this is a paraphrase of what Paul said. What I've been saying about support of widows reminds me of another question of the church finance, the payment of presbyters. Equity and scriptural principles suggest that they should be remunerated in proportion to their usefulness. I like that. The funny part is, is well, that's a good idea, and I do believe it. I'm afraid that if we paid pastors or elders in accordance to their usefulness, many of them would be out of a job and probably should be. But of course we know that the word of God says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox which treads out the corn and the laborer is worthy of his reward or of his hire. So there's not a problem with that. Even the Bible, you know, once again says that those who preach the gospel should live with the gospel. But so often in Christendom, we see the abuses of those things. And Paul's going to go on and tell Timothy, when we get to chapter 2, that there's going to come a time, he says, when they will make merchandise of you. And so we need to be stewards of that. But we need to keep an eye on that. But the fact is, is that those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But the elders who labor long in word and doctrine are worthy of double honor, he says. Look at verse 19. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. So this is kind of like a strike in the balance, I think. Paul's, he says not to receive an accusation against an elder except by the mouth of two or three witnesses. So what he's doing here is trying to make it an even playing field, I guess, for Timothy. Because it is possible to go off, for lack of a better term, half-cocked when it comes to taking accusations against an elder. Because it happens all the time. People get upset with elders. They get upset with pastors, and sometimes they will say stuff that's not true. And then they'll say it to somebody else. And then you know what the rumor weed is, right? And then it begins to grow, and it has no, there's no substantiation to it. So, like I said, it is possible to go off with very little being said, you know, with any substance to it. But by, you know, because by listening to unreliable gossip about the failure in leadership, um, man, it can cause so many problems. However, when you balance it out, if you ignore sinful failure within the leadership, that creates its own problem. So, so either extreme is to be avoided. You know, we want accountability within the leadership, but at the same time, we don't want to just destroy people when the accusations aren't true. And it's happened many, many times. I've heard it said that nothing does more harm than when people are treated as if they can do no wrong or when they're treated like they can do no right. Those are two extremes that most pastors understand. 
You know, a lot of times when pastors get themselves into trouble, the reason nobody ever sees it is because they have put us up on a pedestal to the point where they think that we are not mere men anymore. And that somehow we're beyond failure or beyond a moral problem. And it's just not true. And so they are those ones who think that you can do no wrong. That you simply, you know, and so they don't hold you accountable. Nobody ever asks. I remember there's an old um, worship leader, um, very famous, I won't even mention his name. But he, he had lots of records and he traveled around and um, went to this one huge megachurch and they had invited him to come and sing. And this is a guy who had a serious pornography problem. And so even the night before, of course, they were paying for his room. He would go to his room, and this is his story. I heard him tell it. And he would be in there downloading pornography and doing all kinds of stuff. And then he went to uh, Tony Evans' church. And, of course, in Tony Evans' church, you know, the only person that gets any preeminence in that church is Jesus Christ. They don't play that silly game. So when he walked in the door, he expected people to go, oh, it's, uh, you know, so-and-so. They basically showed him the back pew until it was time for him to play. And then when it, by the time he got up there, his pride was already kind of tweaked because nobody treated him special. And then when he got up there and after he played, Tony Evans him out, took him off to the side. And he goes, son, are you okay with the Lord? How's your walk with Jesus? Because he could see it. There was a problem. And he said, you know what the problem was? Nobody ever asked him. Nobody asked him. This guy had been a professional worship leader and piano player since he was nine. Since he was nine. And because he was up there raising his hands and singing all the beautiful songs and, and doing everything, nobody ever held him accountable. Nobody ever said, hey, son, how are you with Jesus? How's your walk with the Lord? So that is to be avoided. In the same token, treating somebody as though they can do no right is not good either you know so it's that balance that we really want to look for in dealing with this particular passage against an elder received on accusation i like what charles spurgeon said charles spurgeon said that every time someone would come to him this is the way he would deal with it and i like this and i, I wish i had known this most of the years I was pastoring because I didn't. I, I dealt with it similarly but not the way he did it. He said when somebody would come to him about an accusation against somebody on his ministry staff, he would listen to them in his office. And then he would say you've got great points but you know my memory is not as good as it used to be. So here's what I want you to do. Will you please write out everything that you just told me and then sign your name to the bottom of it. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that in all the years that he pastored, not one person took him up on it. Why is that? Because spreading rumor this way has no accountability attached to it. You can always, the, you, can always you know, there's plausible deniability. You understand what I'm saying? When somebody says, who started that? Wasn't me. But boy, if somebody says, who said that? So that we can confirm it, we go, well, we got a paper right here with Mrs. So-and-so's name at the bottom of it, and here's what she said. Most people won't do it. That's the insidious nature of gossip. 
Gossip is designed to do one thing, to defame and to destroy. That's what it does. Isn't it funny that gossip is never really the type that, you know, they never gossip about something that's like extraordinary, even if it's not true, but it's never extraordinarily good. You know, like, you know, exaggerating some good work. It's, it's always the negative. It's always insidious. So, I wish I had known that earlier. I would have told people the same thing. Just write it all out for me because my memory is not very good. Put your name at the bottom of it, and then we'll look further into it, you see. That would have eliminated a lot of problems. So I want to make one note to pastors. This is the reason that every pastor any, or any elder needs someone in whom they can confide. Most pastors, a lot of times, you know, I, I read a Barna study here not too long ago that said that uh, most pastors have no close friends. No close friends. And I don't doubt that that's true for the most part. And because they, they wind up isolating themselves. Here's the problem with that. A lot of times they will try to, because they don't have any close friends that are elders, that are pastors, they will unfortunately make the mistake of trying to confide in a parishioner. Okay? I've seen this happen more times than I could shake a stick. I had a good friend of mine. He's home with the Lord now. He pastored another Calvary Chapel. And I remember one time years ago as the church was fairly young that he was pastoring, he got himself into a lot of hot water because he was buddies with everybody. He just wanted to be everybody's friend, everybody's pal. I mean, you know, you can love people, but, you know, you have to understand that you're in a position of authority when you're a pastor. You are. There's a higher accountability to that. And Dave had made the mistake of thinking that he could be one of the boys. He could be just like the people he was teaching. And so one time he went out and, and uh, the boys wanted to drink a beer. Now, I don't see any problem with that, personally, from the scriptures. We're actually going to cover that tonight. We've got a scripture coming up. But I, wouldn't, I told him, I said, man, don't do that with the parishioner. Why? Because they can do it all they want. But they don't want their pastor doing it. That's all there is to it. It's just common sense, bro. Romans 14, you have faith, have it unto yourself and before God. You know, it's, 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 that's how you know it's a liberty. When it's a genuine liberty, you can just sit at home and do it yourself. I'm being honest. When you think you're getting away with something when you want people to join in with you. You, you want a buddy in the process, you know. And he made that mistake, and it backfired on him. Because after he sat there and did that, you know, all of a sudden they had a problem with him. You know, and so often guys will even do, take it to the next level, and they'll begin to confide in friends. As a pastor, confiding in somebody else about his shortcoming or whatever. I was so thankful when I became a Calvary guy because they had thought of this. We had a website that was the uh, senior pastor list server had like 700 guys it might be more than that on it now but it was strictly you had to actually sign a waiver saying that nobody else not your wife not anybody would read those emails because they were strictly for people who were senior pastors who understood what you're going through who understood what it was to be in that position 
and who understood what it was to have to have somebody I could tell that, you know what, brother, I'm struggling in this area. I'm struggling in this area. Will you pray for me without condemnation? And even in that setting, it is hard to find people that will do that without condemning you. But it's really tough when you try to call out that kind of, uh, of relationship to people that you're trying to teach. I just wanted to throw that into pastors who might be listening to me. Don't do that. Find you somebody who is either of the same peer group. I'm talking, he's a senior pastor or, or he, assistant pastor or maybe even a, just an elder, a teacher, whatever. But find somebody that you can talk to and be accountable to. Because we need to be accountable to each other without the fear of condemnation. And the reason pastors don't confess to each other is because not only are they afraid of condemnation, but they're afraid of being uh, exiled, if that makes any sense to you. Not only do they become condemned, they're afraid of condemnation, but they're afraid of condemnation to the point of leaving the ministry. And that's why a lot of them do it. It's, it's so unfortunately, some of them uh, suffer with the secret sin. And it's too bad because it doesn't need to be that way. They need somebody that they can talk to. Look at verse 20. He says, them that sin, talking about the elders now. Of course, he says, don't read, you know, against an elder receive not an accusation, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Those that sin, he says, rebuke before all that others may fear. Mm. I heard Pastor Chuck teach on this one time. He said, if we actually practice this, he said, the church would be empty. Well, the fact is, is he's only talking about elders here. This is who he's talking about. He's not talking about you know, the people, the congregants. Many churches have suffered much because sin in the leadership was not addressed. Accountability in the church leadership should be first and foremost. And no one should be shielded from it. It's important that everyone understand that leadership in the church brings with it greater accountability. You know, in James, he says, let not many of us be teachers, for we shall concur the greater condemnation. He's not talking about condemnation from God, because Romans 8, 1 tells us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What condemnation is he talking about? He's talking about from people. And it does. It brings a greater condemnation. The scrutiny, if you're a teacher, if you're a pastor teacher, the scrutiny that you're put under is a much greater, and should be, accountability than the average person. So, Paul said that those elders who were sinning are to be publicly rebuked. That is, in the presence of the church. And I think you need to make that clear. Not in the presence of the world. You've got to read this in context of Galatians 6. If you take a note tonight, write it down. It's Galatians 6, 1. He says, Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. When dealing with the issues of sin and leadership, or with people in general, we must always remember that restoration is the goal. Restoration is what, what the Lord wants. It's been said that Christians are the only ones who kill their wounded. And I've found this to be true so many times. When I think about correcting elders who have sinned the best example of what not to do can be found in our own hometown just a few short years ago there was a young pastor about 42 years old I knew him 
Some of you maybe have knew him. If you didn't know him, you read about him. Now, whether he should have been a pastor or not is debatable. He was so young in the Lord, in my humble opinion, he should have never been made it, but he was. And in the course of time, this young man found himself in a sinful relationship with another woman from his church. And he wound up committing adultery. When his elders found out about it, of course, they brought it to his attention, which he promptly confessed to. But what did they do? They wrote a letter and sent it out to everybody in the church. That letter made its way to the local newspaper. This young man, who'd only been a Christian for six short years, feeling the condemnation of his own sin, having admitted to it, and now feeling not only the condemnation, but the ridicule from the world, which is without mercy, could not bear the pressure of his own iniquity and took his own life and left behind, I think, three daughters and a wife and everything else. That's how you don't do it. And I do believe wholeheartedly that those who did that will answer for it. I think they will. You don't do that. You know, the guy had confessed. He had made restoration should have been the key. They should have taken it to the church. They should have kept it in the church. Should he have been rebuked? Absolutely. Should he have been accountable? Absolutely. Not to the world. The world loves that garbage game. They love it when they see somebody fall. They love it because it gives them an excuse for their own sin. It won't work for them on Judgment Day, believe me. There won't be anybody there to point fingers at if they don't know the Lord. They can't say, well, I'm not, I didn't serve Jesus because I knew that pastor and he took a plunge. It's not going to happen. It won't work. But they love it when it happens. And unfortunately, there's even people within the body of Christ who love it when a, when a pastor falls. But the bottom line is always restoration. Absolutely. Them that, them that sin, rebuke before all. That is, before the whole church. Do it. But remember, restoration is the key. You know, a rebuke is, is, is simply taking the scriptures and going, brother, what are you doing, man? You know that this isn't what the Lord would have you do. And if he confesses his sin and he forsakes his sin, you've won your brother. This is what the scriptures want us to do. This is what the Lord has directed us to do, but so often that's not the case. Oh, we love the fact that it says rebuke before all that others may also fear, but we forget about Galatians 6.1. Restoration. Look to yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Consider yourself. Look at verse 21. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. God is no respecter of persons, what Paul is saying, and neither should we be. So he's telling Timothy, look, don't do anything out of partiality. So often, sometimes people are not held accountable in, in the body of Christ. Why? Because they're the largest tither. Don't think it doesn't happen, gang. It happens. That's why at Calvary Chapel, when I was pastoring, I made sure that I knew nobody. I, didn't, I never knew anyone. I didn't know what their tithe record was. I didn't know. I didn't want to know whether they gave or whether they didn't give. I didn't care because I was called to minister to each and every one of them. That was between them and the Lord. 
But so often, sometimes they do know. And that can, that can happen. Or they can show partiality because, you know, Uncle Jojo is in the choir. And Uncle Jojo's got a problem. But I don't want to say nothing to him because he's Uncle Jojo. And, you know, Uncle Jojo's been in the church and his family's been in the church. And it goes all the way back to 1926. We don't want to upset Uncle Jojo, even though he's living in an adulterous situation. But, you know, the guy's got a great voice. So we don't want to rebuke him openly. Paul tells Timothy, listen, without partiality, God is no respecter of persons. Neither should we be. Verse 22, he says, Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be a partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. I love this verse. Too often there are people who join a church not because they felt the move of God or they heard the pastor on a radio program or on a tape or whatever and felt that his expertise in exegetical exercises was so good that they just had to go there and listen to it. No, that's not it. Most people join a church because they want a family. They want friends. And on the surface, there's really nothing wrong with that. But so often they come into the congregation looking for a family. And nobody ever asked them, like that worship leader, when were you born again? When did you give your life to the Lord? See, the, the, the dumb thing that most churches adhere to, gang, and believe me, most of them do this. They have a saying. It's ungodly. It's unscriptural as you can get, but many people embrace it because they think it sounds like wisdom. If you don't use them, you will lose them. Paul says, lay hands suddenly on no man and neither be a partaker of other men's sins. The problem is when people come into the church and we don't know them, we don't know where they stand with the Lord. We don't know if they've got sin in their life. And just because a man can play guitar or because he can sing or because he has administrative abilities or whatever that ability is, and a lot of times they come into that family, that church family, and right away they want to be involved in a ministry. They want to get into that. Oh, I can do this. I can do that for you. And if you're foolish, you'll say, absolutely, because you know if you don't use them, you'll lose them. So let's put them in the worship band. Or let's put them in the office. And, or let's put them in the kids' ministry without vetting them. And I don't mean putting them through an FBI background check. I mean getting to know them. Let's hear the story of his glory in their life. Let me see how Jesus is operating in your life. Then let me know. You know, as a pastor, I had so many times I had people who come to us and they would want to work in the children's ministry or they would want to be in the worship band. I had a strict rule and I violated it a couple times and I was sorry every time I did it. I had a, I had a rule of six months and I told everybody the same thing. When they came to me, they wanted, they wanted to do whatever. I would say, you know what? Listen to me. Do me a favor. Just, just come and worship with us. Be a part of our family for six months before you even think of doing anything. I said, oh, but I love this place. I love you. I said, you'll probably hate my guts in two weeks because I know I'm going to open my mouth and I'm going to say something that's probably going to tick you off. I'm not trying, but I know that as a Bible teacher, I'm going to read something you're probably not going to like. And the next thing you know, you're probably going to hate me. Oh, no, Doug, I've been listening to you for you. Whatever, okay. We'll sit down for six months, and at the end of six months, if you still feel that call, then come and talk to me. We want to get to know you. 
lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be a partaker. If you're taking notes, underline that part. Neither be a partaker of other men's sins because that's in reality what we're doing. When we put a person into a place of ministry, I don't care whether it's playing guitar, playing the drums, working in the office, working in the, the, the youth ministry, and they've got major sin issues in their life. Now listen, do not misunderstand me. I understand that every one of us sitting here, and I'm concluding myself and those listening or listening on radio, we've all got sin in our life in some way, shape, or form. I understand that. That's not what I'm talking about. But some of us are fighting it. Most of us who know the Lord, we battle it. We get up every morning. Paul the Apostle said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. Those of us who understand it, you know, we understand our own wretchedness. We cling to the cross of Christ. We cling to his vicarious life. We cling to those things. Therefore, we experience victory in the Lord. That's a normal Christian life. But there are those who come into the church who just want to be a part of a family. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're not born again, gang. And they've got major sin in their life, but we don't know that. Why? Because we just, we, if you don't use them, you're going to lose them. That's crazy. Don't do that. Why? Because when we do that, we're becoming partakers with their sin. We're enabling them to do that. That's why I'm, I'm really prodding you guys that once a month let's sit down let's let one of us get up and give your testimony i want to hear the story of his glory in your life i want to hear when you came to know jesus i want to hear it that strengthens my faith in the lord and it encourages other people to speak up for jesus too we get to know you i was telling some people this morning i said isn't it amazing we can sit in a pew with somebody for years and years and years and never know when they were born again or if they ever were just because a person sits in a pew with you, gang, doesn't mean, listen, you can sit in a garage all your life and never be a car. And you can sit in church all your life and never be a Christian. And that's sad, but it's true. Lay hands suddenly on no man, Paul said. Need to be a partaker of other men's sins. Me and my wife attended a church. I won't, I won't go into where it was at, but it was in Ohio. And when we went in, we, we, we listened, and, and I knew there was a problem. When we left the church that day, me and my wife both looked at each other, and we said, man, that, the worship leader, there was a, I don't, did, did you like that guy? And I'm not talking about the way he played. That was terrible, too. But there was just something about him. It was, I call it a conflict of spirit. I didn't know him, hadn't known him. But boy, there was one of those things, you know, you, you know when it's the Holy Spirit because the Lord's going, yeah, keep this one at arm's distance. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about. And we talked about it. We prayed about it. Me and my wife, I was going, I don't know, man. This, mm, I just don't like this guy. And I don't know why I don't like him. And I don't like it when I have that. But it, almost always it's been the Lord. We found out later on, of course, that here was this guy who was in his 50s and he was trying to have an, an affair with a 16-year-old girl. So he was a pedophile. And he got busted. And of course, it was a girl in the church. Lay hands suddenly on no man. Neither be a partaker of other men's sins. Just because somebody comes in and they have an ability. How many times have I told you, God doesn't care about your ability. 
God can give you an ability. What he's looking for is availability. No doubt make yourself available, but at the same time, you know, we want to be able to get to know somebody before we put them in a position of ministry of any kind. Worship bands are notorious again for having problems. Every time when, when the worship isn't good, when it's not really, you know, they want to, you know, even, listen, I've heard the Lord use some of the most terrible musicians in the world. I, I, I clued myself in that. I mean, there, there's many times when I'm playing Holy Ghost chords and I don't even know what they are and, and God doesn't either. And, you know, but the fact is, is at the end of the service, sometimes people will come up and go, oh man, that was that was awesome. And I know that the Lord just touched their ears because he knew my heart was to serve him and to worship him at that moment. So the Lord touched the ears of the people, and I'm so thankful for that. But so often within worship bands, you know, you'll have guys that are out here playing in the clubs. They're out here singing songs that are, it would make your hair curl. And you're going, and then they come in and sing about Jesus on Sunday. I don't get it. I don't understand it. How can I worship you know, it's just, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Don't do that. Paul says, listen, don't lay hands suddenly on any man and neither be a partaker of other men's sins. Verse 23, drink no longer water, he tells Pastor Timothy, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thy often infirmities. I made one note on this. It says, so much for abstinence. I won't even argue this one. Listen, you know, moderation is the key. This is what Paul's talking about. The word wine here in the Greek means wine. So he tells Timothy, no, you don't drink no longer just a little water, but a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thy often infirmity. So evidently, Timothy was a guy who was sick. He had problems with that. So Paul tells him, take a little bit of it. Don't worry about it. Once again, I think when we talked through it before, I pointed out the fact that, you know, at, the, at Jesus' first miracle he did was he created wine, and he created a whole bunch of it. Go back and read the story. And I love what Pastor, you know, John Corson says in his commentary on that. He said, isn't it funny that Jesus not only created all this wine, but he never even gave him a sermon on overconsumption. But he did it. Why? It was, a it was a wedding party. Listen, moderation's the key. That's all there is to it. Look at verse 24. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men's follow after. What's he mean by that? Skeletons don't like closets. It's a fact. So often people want to have that skeleton in their closet. They think nobody's ever going to know. Listen, skeletons won't stay in closets. Eventually they'll come out. And it'll come out at a time when you don't think so. Here's my suggestion. If you have a sin in your life, just confess it. The Bible says, he that confesses and forsakes his sin shall prosper. You want to prosper? I do. So be open about it. Nobody's condemning you. Listen, I mean, you know, the fact is, is that we all know we're all sinners. We know that. Now, granted, we're all saints, too. I embrace that. I like what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther said, if you sin, let your sins be bold, but let your faith in Christ be bolder. I understand my own wretchedness. I know who I am. I know what I am. I'm created by God, but the fact is I'm also a human, but I am a man who has been endued and imputed by the righteousness of Christ so I can walk in victory because it's not my righteousness, it's His. Even though I might have a problem once in a while. A righteous man falls seven times, but yea, he will rise again. So once again, it's that kind of thing. Get them out of the way. Get the skeletons. Clean, clean the closets, what I would tell you to do. Even in Numbers 20, 32, 23, if you're taking notes. 
He says, be sure, your sin will find you out. Some men's sins go before. Some men's sins are evidence, what he's saying. Some men's sins will follow after. Some of them are coming out of the, <laughs> out of, out of the closet at one time or another. Last verse. Likewise, also, the good works of some are manifest beforehand. Sometimes you can just see them because they're there. And they that are, not, uh, or that are otherwise cannot be hid. I love the fact that, you know what, when you're just doing what the Lord has called you to do, everybody is going to see it. Not that that's our goal, but the Bible says that we should do our good works in the open so that those that see it would glorify our Father, which is in heaven. That's what the bottom line is. I want to just encourage you, read ahead, chapter 6, it gets better and better. Those of you who are listening online, listen to me, gang. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that today. All you've got to do is look around. The clock is ticking. You know it, and I know it. We're getting closer and closer to that time when the bridegroom is going to come and take his bride. You need to ask yourself, where do I stand with Jesus today? That's the only question that matters. Jesus talked to his disciples, and he said, who do you say that I am? And they all began to say something different. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're one of the prophets. He said, but who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? Is he the Son of God? If he is, then you need to confess that. You need to believe that and embrace all that Jesus Christ has done for you. If you have any questions, I encourage you to, to send them, you know, post them for us. We'll get to them. And we're praying for you. We love you. We thank you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we just thank you for all that you've done, all that you want to do, Lord. Father, I pray for those who maybe have never put their faith in you. Lord, Father, that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We love you so much. We ask this for your blessing tonight, Father, as we continue to fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.